This is the Stanford's podcast at the Stanford's Travel Writers Festival at Destinations in Olympia. Hello and welcome to the Stanford Travel Writers Festival. Uh, well done for packing in so tightly. Thank you for being so obedient. Rick Stein, thank you for being here. Pleasure. I'm really um, had a quick look round. It's very exciting. That's Unusual. I normally go to food shows, as you can imagine. So seeing all these exotic places quite different. Giving you ideas, I should think, yes, isn't it? Yes, yes, exactly, yeah. Now, do you have the very best job in television? Well, it's not too bad, I must say. I, I can't think of too many down... It's, it's, it's hard work sometimes. Nobody ever though? believes it. Well, I mean, telly is quite hard work. It's very nice when you, um, when you get somebody on, coming on the shoot with you and they often say, I, I had no idea it was so boring, you know, because you... A lot of the time, I mean, you film ten times what ends up in the programmes, and a lot of it, sometimes you're filming and you just think, this is never going to make it, and that is a bit soul-destroying. But generally, it's lovely. I, I love travel. I love the countries we go to, and I really love the crew I work with, and I've worked with them for 20, 25 years, with, well, with David, the director, nearly 30 years. So um, it's, it's sort of a bit like a second family in a way. We have squabbles, but they're not serious <laughs> squabbles. Sometimes they're serious squabbles. Well, what do you but... squabble about? Well, the big squabble is that David sometimes... David's a bit of a sort of mercurial character. That's the director. And sometimes he gets into Cecil B. DeMille mode. And he sort of, like, forgets that when we've stopped filming and we're in a restaurant somewhere, it's, it's maybe quite nice if I could choose the bottle of wine, right? <laughs> <laughs> And sometimes he just orders everything, and I can say, well, you can piss off. <laughs> and I'll s sort of get up and walk out of the restaurant, things like that. And actually, in the French series, French Odyssey, they, we made this um, uh, final programme called Cabin Fever, where we actually, knowing what we're like, David had asked a chum of his director to go around with a small camera and film behind the scenes. And um, I remember my agent, Barbara Levy, at the time, saying, I don't think this is a good idea because, you know, everybody thinks you're very nice and this isn't going to... But it was just so nice. It was so funny because it was the, what really happened, you know, and the quarrels weren't are never that serious. One of the very first rules about working with a TV crew, not, not to do with food, where it, whatever the subject matter is, is keep the crew happy, keep them fed... Are your crew particularly picky? They're not... Well, I mean, they're particularly picky in a very British way, in that wherever we are in the world, if they can get a full English breakfast, they'll have it, except for Chris, <laughs> who's a vegetarian. Um, but he'll have some sort of English variation of that. And they're not, they're not really fussed about all this lovely food, so you probably noticed in, on various occasions... Notably in Mexico, I'm thinking, and also in Iceland in long weekends, where we sort of set them up to make them eat grasshoppers or make them eat stinky skates, just because, you know, they would never dream of doing it, you know. They always say to me, well, what, you know, you don't like that stuff, do you? And I say, well, I'm very keen to try it. So let's, let's talk about Mexico. You first went there in 1968, which is kind of the premise for the programme. Um, tell us about the circumstances way back when. Well, it was a sort of mixture of um, sort of bad luck. I mean, my father died. He committed suicide, which I'm, you know, I don't feel bad about saying. And I was, 
thrown into some turmoil. And I started, actually started a job soon after he died, working in, um, as a hotel uh, management trainee. And I was working in the London Hotel in the, what was then called the Great Western Hotel in Paddington. But I suppose it's sort of like, it's like falling off a bicycle. I was sort of like getting more and more wobbly. And finally, I just made up my mind to escape the country and go as far away as I could. And I went to Australia simply because my parents had been there quite a few times. And my mother sort of wrote back absolutely glowingly about it. But also because in Cornwall at the time, where I was, where I was living, um, the, uh, the beaches people were getting drowned. It was sort of the early days of the holiday industry. Atlantic coast of Great Britain is quite dangerous and people were getting drowned. So they, the council employed these uh, Australian lifeguards, mostly from Sydney, to come and save lives. And um, they were always, I mean, I just was so influenced by them because they were very always handsome, always fit, always bronzed, always charming the local girls. And I sort of thought, actually, at the time, when I was trying to work out where to go, I just thought, well, Australia. And as I then recorded, actually, in the memoir, I said, it's nice to see you've got that, Gillian. As I recorded, I said, I thought of it as the country where people don't die. You know, there's sort of that sort of sense of optimism about it. So I went there and I spent a year and a bit in Australia and then in New Zealand. And I decided to come back home then our America and I got to America in January and it was so cold and it's not a great country I've grown to really like America but at the time I was traveling on Greyhound buses and you just it's a bit like midnight cowboy you just never it was cold it was snowy and you, there was no way of getting to know anybody and I was reading because I've re always read a lot a book called Mornings in Mexico by, uh, by D.H. Lawrence. And it just painted this picture of this country south of the border, which was warm first and sort of exotic and slightly sort of Mediterranean. So I just hitchhiked down and, cr and crossed the border. And actually, in the book, I've sort of recorded the first meal I had, because I do remember it in Monterey, not Monterey in California, but in northern Mexico, as being quite a sort of changer in my life, because it was the first time I'd had tasted really exotic cooking. I mean, we were a little bit used to sort of quite ordinary Chinese and ordinary Indian in, in England in the 60s. But hitting Mexico was, you know, I said in the book, I show off a bit, and I've used this technique before, but I was, it, I, I, it was a bit like listening to Little Richard playing something like Long Tall Sally for the first time. The sort of like an amount of heat and a flavor and a freshness it was a sort of rite of passage. Mm. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds, to be honest, like a good enough reason to go back. <laughs> yeah, it was. It was. Um, so quite, you, you also say in the book that um, people often perceive Mexican food to be quite heavy and quite stodgy, but that's something that you, you, you've um, removed that idea within both your recipes, but also on the TV programme in terms of the people that you meet and yeah, things that they're cooking. It's right, Gillian. It's, it's, I think the Mexicans also feel that, interestingly, that they associate the sort of food which they have up till recently tasted all over the world as Tex-Mex food. And I'd say there's nothing wrong with Tex-Mex food, but it is a lot richer, a lot heavier, and it's not Mexican. And um, 
their food is very varied. And I mean, I must say, the book's been really well received. Um, but I mean, I've, as I've said at the beginning, I've only scratched the surface. But I have tried to sort of like, we visited as many parts of Mexico as we could. And, you know, find, find recipes that were pretty light, pretty fresh, particularly seafood recipes. And I mean, it's just a, it's a fascinating cuisine. Uh, it, it, it's so old, you know, because it goes back to Aztec times and there's quite a lot of food still being served, which goes back that far. But then of course you've got the Spanish influence, which made so much difference. I just find it fascinating. And also what I like about the Mexicans is the, how much they love their cuisine. And it sort of doesn't matter what they're cooking. If people are talking sort of incredibly passionately about whatever it is, even grasshoppers, <laughs> there's a sort of sense you sort of you think, well, oh, better try them, mm. you know. Show of hands, who's eaten grasshoppers? Well, a few, a few. <laughs> the front row crowd, excellent. Well done, you. <laughs> So the other thing I think which is um, a slight misconception is that actually it's all quite the same. You know, one taco is much like another. So talk us through tacos, burritos, quesadillas and all those others. Well, I think that, I mean, first tacos and tacos are just the rolled up, the, the, the stuffed tortillas. Once a tortilla is rolled up with a filling, it's called a taco. And I, I sort of, I mean, you can say that all tacos are the same, but really, if you imagine something like pasta, with all the myriad of sauces that go with pasta. Tacos have the same sort of thing. It's basically just the carbohydrate accompaniment to lots of other flavors. And I, I, it, they can be extremely filling or they can be just something like a little bit of, I don't know, tuna, a bit of coriander, serrano chili, and avocado and lime juice. So they can be as light as you like. And the, I don't know why, but I, I, I do think, that, I mean, burritos are normally made with flour tortillas because of, you can get bigger tortillas and flour is easier to work with because of the gluten content. You can get much more elastic. And I think that's probably where this, the, what we now call wraps, when they were made with flour tortillas. But corn tortillas, which are harder to handle, just have this superb flavor. And I, I was sort of trying to sort of you know, it's really difficult to explain flavours, and nobody does it. I, I'd sort of say it had a sort of limey taste, as if anybody knew what lime was like, but, but in order to soften the kernels of corn, you have to, they have to go through this process of what they call nixtamalization, is where you boil up the corn with lime, and it softens the husk. But... It's easier to de describe flavors, to compare it. And I just always think when you go to Mexico and you smell this smell of hot corn, it was a bit like when I was young going to France and smelling the smell of high roasted coffee and French cigarettes, gourds and guitars. It's so sort of particular to that country. And you just, whenever you get back, you say, it's so nice to be back. When you're out filming, do you dread that moment when you're t you've got to taste something that somebody else has prepared for you and you've got to put it into words there and then on screen? Well, I'm, these are good questions, Julia, I have to say. <laughs> I, was, um, I do try. <laughs> it, there's a journalist that writes in The Times called Camilla Long um, who described um, Michael Portillo, which I think, is, has he been here or is he coming Yesterday, to the show? Yesterday, yeah. As, as being, you know, he is a very engaging traveller, 
Uh, but he's, I think he's trying a bit of food. And uh, he said he hasn't got anywhere near the school of Rick Stein, who, whenever he tastes anything, even if it's yak shit, will put on a smile. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I sort of, I'm getting a bit worried because it's really hard. I try and put in a little few, like, suggestions, but it's really hard to tell somebody who's just cooked you something you don't like it. It's not my, in my in my sort of makeup, so, but I am getting worried because everybody thinks that I love everything I eat, which by God, I don't. <laughs> so I'm just trying to work out with the director, with David, see, I call him the director sometimes, how we're gonna get over this. I think it will be what we've been developing of late is a little sort of, a, a little confrontation between me and him. And he'll say something like, Oh, come on, you didn't really like that, did you? And I'll say, no, I didn't actually. I thought it was bloody <laughs> terrible. But this would be after... Yeah, off the cap, yeah, 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 yeah. But is, does that kindness in you come from being on the receiving end of people saying, well, that's not up to scratch? Well, I suppose so. I mean, as a restaurateur and as a cook, you're, you're always, like, suffering from people telling you how awful your food is. And I suppose it's like any, you know, any creative process that you, you do put a lot of your own self into it and if people don't like it, it it's very hurtful so I do tend to rather go the other way you're absolutely right and say that's delicious fantastic <laughs> those frog's legs cooked in old oil in northern Greece love lovely. them <laughs> <Lovely>. <laughs> um, people are also quite generous though aren't they and that they they let you stand there with a notebook some of them and take take notes I mean isn't it trade secrets that chefs want to hang on to that well I mean I'm quite respectful if they say I don't want to give you the recipe I never worry because I mean particularly if it's a sort of very small menu or some places like there was a a, um, a, a Christ sorry my brain's gone a um, the French sorry Breton uh, chowder I've got it now chowder in California, in in a restaurant in California, was they that have the one with the sourdough? With the sourdough. Yeah. Sorry about that. Um, she wouldn't give me the recipe, and they just have this one dish. So I just thought, well, why would you give me the recipe? Mm. But I mean, what I say to people is that you know, I have got quite sort of high circulation of viewers and people that buy the books, and it might just help you to put you on the map. And funnily enough. It was, um, we were filming in Guadalajara at a restaurant called Alcalda. And um, I really liked the chef called Paco. Um, and he was very generous because he let us go into his kitchen on a Saturday night at about eight o'clock. All his other his chefs were looking daggers at us because, you know, if, if you know the restaurant game, you know eight o'clock on a Saturday night is not a time to go into a kitchen. But he graciously let us go in there, film a dish. <clears throat> And blow me, I discovered he'd come over to England last week and he was um, cooking at a friend of mine, Ni Ni Nigel... Was it saying? I'm having a bit of a... Nigel Howarth at a place called... My, my brain's going. <laughs> Northcote Manor. That's my wife just filming in <laughs> sass. Um, he was filming there, so I bought... I got tickets and we went up there. And he was just really nice. And I mean, I liked him when I filmed with him, but he just said... He said, I had no idea how popular your 
programme is, he said, we've got all these British people coming to my restaurant Fantastic. now. Fantastic. So it makes me feel OK about basically nicking their recipes, you know. It's, um... <laughs> <laughs> and one of the places that you go to, of course, in, this, uh, in the road to Mexico is, the, is Caesars, isn't it? Which, yes, you know, has yes. become world famous, the Caesar salad. But how secret do they keep that? Uh, not at all. I mean, and um, what I loved about it, and I, um, I met the, the chef who, um, who now runs it, is that it's so simple. And um, the, the reason that Caesar's, Caesar's is in Tijuana, it's not a Mexican restaurant. It was just that during the, the um, prohibition in the States, Tijuana became really, really busy with people coming over the border for all kinds of illegal reasons, including getting something to drink, mm -hmm. right? And this was a, a sort of chancer of an Italian who opened a restaurant there. And basically, as, as the legend said, he just made this salad one night from all the sort of ingredients he'd got in his sort of cupboard, which was like, you know, Parmesan cheese, he made some croutons, garlic, a bit of olive oil. And uh, he just created this really simple dish. And it's just wonderful to go and taste the real thing made properly because Caesar's salad has become such a sort of vehicle for all kinds of things that were never intended to be in the recipe. And it's just a fantastic um, restaurant. And um, Tijuana is one of those places that has got a really bad reputation um, for sort of murder and all the rest of it. But thanks to actually a few chefs like his, it's also now become a bit of a foodie destination. Mm. And I really loved it. I mean, going across the border from San Diego into Tijuana is just is the biggest, busiest border crossing in the world. And just that sort of difference of culture is just worth doing just for itself. Mm -hmm. Street food is something that you find on your journey, isn't it? And the one that particularly jumped at me was that um, the drowned sandwich. Yes, um, that's a sort of speciality of, um, of, of Guadalajara. And it's, when I heard about it, I just thought, this is not going to be nice. And when I watched people eating it, I thought, this is going to be terrible. Basically, you have pork, and it's slow-cooked pork called carnitas, which is just, a, it's, it's cooked a bit like you do duck confit, just cooked pork in lard very slowly for hours and hours till it falls off the bone. And they make up this sandwich, but the point of the sandwich, and I've, it's in the book and in the series, was that it's sourdough, and that stems back from the time when the French were, well, it was part, there was a, one of the, Napoleon was in charge, one of the, um, young Napoleons was in charge of Mexico. And a lot of bakers came over from France and produced sourdough rolls. So they make a sourdough roll, beautiful tasting roll. They fill it with carnitas, this slow cooked pork. And then they just pour a, a very hot salsa roja over it and, and just whizzed up raw tomatoes. And they put so much stuff on it that the bread just goes all soggy, right? And they have to serve it up in a plastic bag because you couldn't eat it any other way. And it sounds the most revolting concoction. But what makes it work so well is that not all the crispy sourdough goes soggy. And you've got this contrast of sort of crispness and sogginess. And I don't know why. It's called affogato, like the, like the um, Italian. It's just the most wonderful flavor. And, uh, you know, you've got to hand it. I mean, I don't know if you been to Guadalajara, but it is a beautiful city. It's the second largest city in Mexico. 
And you just sort of think that a place that this is their sort of signature dish, they're pretty special people. Yeah. How many people have been to Mexico? Okay, great. Did anybody have drowned sandwich? Okay, you're going to need to go back, aren't you? Clearly. Um, let's talk fish. Right. And fish off that Californian and Mexican coast. What do you reckon? I think it's beautiful. I mean, it's quite interesting that, um, that in Mexico, Pacific Coast fish is held to be the best. I mean, there's good fish in the, in the Gulf and in the Caribbean, but if you want really good fish, that's what they say. You need to get it from, from the Pacific. And I mean, the, the fish that unfortunately we don't have here, but which is my favorite there is mahi-mahi dolphin fish. And uh, it's a sort of, you've got to have, if you're going to have a fish taco, it's, I mean, unfortunately, my recipe, not unfortunately, actually, I've written it with cod, and that is really nice, but mahi-mahi is really special. And they do a lot of ceviche, and um, I suppose it's, in South America, but also in Mexico. And I think that the, what I discovered in Mexico is their ceviche and the, the lemons, sorry, the limes they use, I think are, are slightly different to us. They're a little bit sweeter. And in fact, we have a Peruvian waitress in one of our restaurants that actually runs the cafe in Padstow. And she said, you don't know ceviche till you've tried sort of New World limes. And I think that, that makes a difference. The other thing is that they don't tend to cook the fish in the lime juice for as long as it seems to be done here. So it is slightly sort of undercooked, slightly raw. And again, it's that combination of mahi-mahi, just slightly undercooked, avocado and serrano chili and coriander. It's just fabulous, fabulous so, and so good for you. Yeah. Um, so when you come back to your kitchen in Padstow and you're um, creating these recipes and then you taste that for the first time, how do, you, um, how do you recreate it? And can you honestly recreate it? You can't honestly recreate it because, I mean, you can't... It's even at this, this moment, if you talk to a Mexican about the difference between jalapeno chili and serrano chili, they'll just say it's a world apart. But to us, they're about the same... Um, heat and they're green and that's as far as we can go so for a start we're using jalapeno we should be using serrano and then of course as I was saying the limes aren't the same and the fish isn't the same uh, but the, as long as you get good um, good coriander, fresh chilies and, um, and avocado as well it, you can approximate it and I, I, I've, we've, we've done really well, we've got the dish on in several of the restaurants, that particular ceviche and it's, it's popular. Mm. Yeah. Mm. So the beginning of your journey in this book is in California, the first couple of programs actually, and you've got plenty of recipes in, in there. And you talk about California actually being really an important influence for you as a chef. So just take us through that journey from, you know, the, the French side of things and, and to where you are now. Well, I mean, I think the, the, the great thing about California, and I, again, I went there in the, six, in the 60s, but in those days... The food was nothing like what it is now. I mean, the, I, the only thing I can really remember from 1968 in California were the Dungeness crabs in, um, in San Francisco. But I think the thing that I... I mean, I really like going back to California, and I really like California. 
I loved having a Mustang and doing the sort of posy thing and, you know, convertible and driving down the Pacific Highway. But it's sort of a bit like Australia, and I love Australia, is that there's a sort of still a sort of can-do feeling about California because I suppose it was the promised land, you know. It was sort of like people gradually moved from the east to the west and people always thought there was, you know, it was going to be, well, there was the gold rush that started it. And you still get that sense of, I don't know, immediacy and sort of optimism about California. And I, I did say in a couple of pieces of camera that it's not, we all tend to think, of, not all of us, but there is this feeling that all the bad stuff that happens in the States ends up happening here. But a lot of the good stuff happens too. And the thing about California is that they're, they're sort of looking into the future. And I mean, at the moment, um, it's all going to be about vegan food, you know? And um, so I can tell you, there'll be a vegan restaurant coming towards you sometime <laughs> Any soon. Any minute now. <laughs> um, but also the thing, and, and we filmed in a vegan restaurant. I think David just didn't use it because it's vegan food and he doesn't get it. But I was really fascinated because, as from a restaurateur's point of view, it's a very expensive restaurant and there's a lot of profit in vegetables, let me tell you. <laughs> no expensive protein. And got all these sort of film stars and directors and God knows what. It was in, um, in Hollywood. And I was just really taken with it and taken with the whole ethos, which is like... The thing about the Californians is they're really good marketers. They're good at selling what they've got. And I remember thinking when we did a series called Food Heroes about 12 years ago, we travelled around Britain and Ireland and we found really good food and really dedicated people, but nobody knew how to sell it. So going to California and seeing how clever they are at selling it was just really exciting for me. And the other thing about California, which I didn't think I would go for, was their readiness to accept food allergies. And um, one of our actually one of our fixers, those are the people that are local that, that, um, that look after you, Lex, was suffering from a lot of food allergies and I mean including courgettes he had about five things, right I've never heard of anybody been allergic to courgettes, but he was every restaurant we went into, they couldn't have been more helpful and it's sort of part of, the, part of what their makeup now and you know whether you Whatever you think about food allergies, they're here, they're with us, and you might as well get used to it as a restaurateur and, you know, be decent to people. You talk about Hollywood and celebrities. Do you enjoy the fame? I don't mind it. I mean, uh, the fame, I'm sort of... Um, I mean, it can be a bit sort of tiresome if you're trying to do something and you forget that people know who you are. I always remember... The first time I, the first series, um, Taste of the Sea, I was putting a load of, emptying a load of dustbins into one of, before the sort of smart bins, we used to have these big aluminium bins, and I was sort of heaving dustbins into this outdoor bin, and somebody came up and asked if they could take a picture of me, and I was sort of like, what? <laughs> you know, Not really. <laughs> Not really. And I was, a bit, I was a bit sort of rude to them, and then I felt terrible about it. But the other side of it is, you know, we all like, you know, we all exist as human beings by, you know, communicating, by connecting with each other. So it's sort of quite nice as well, mm. you know. 
And do you find that you're able to use it as a platform for the things that you believe in or that you'd like to promote? Yes, I do. I mean, there is, there's, there's a lot of things that people want me to do. And unfortunately, because, you know, there's not enough hours in the day, I can't do them all. But it's nice to be able to put, to put your sort of, like, popularity to help people to raise money for particular charities. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, good. yeah that's privilege. Um, long weekends... Where should people go? Well, um, it, it was really interesting because um, we did, uh, I think, uh, 10, 10 long weekends last time. And generally, people liked everywhere we went. It's interesting. I think the, the one place people didn't like was Berlin. But it's actually one of the places that I really liked because it was so different. Uh, but it was sort of what was really gratifying about long weekends is that we did choose quite unusual places like... Uh, Bologna, well, I mean, it, you know, if you're a foodie, it's not an unusual place, but it's not, you know, people tend to go to places like Florence nearby mm. and not Bologna, and Cadiz in, in, um, in, in Spain. Um, again, people, they go to Seville, they go to Jerez, but not necessarily Cadiz. And Iceland, I mean, anybody that's been to Iceland will know exactly why we were so excited there, but it was just nice to find those sort of places. So, I mean, we are going to do another series um, but at the moment, we're having the most vicious arguments about where we're going, as you would have expected. Shall we put it to the vote? Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I can name a few places. We're, we're either going to Prague or Budapest or Krakow. There's a big argument there, right? We, won't, we can only choose one. Half of us want to go to St. Petersburg, but I'm not so sure. So I'm causing trouble there. David wants to go to Brittany. I said, look, we've filmed in Brittany so many times, I don't want to go there. Where I want to go is Lyon in, in France because of the markets. So it's just fun. You know, we want to go to Genoa, definitely. Um, in Spain, well, funnily enough, at the moment, we're looking at Salamanca because it's a very old... Um, and the only reason we, we cottoned onto it is because Michael Portillo's family come from Salamanca okay. <laughs> and he was there recently so we do look yeah. at what other people are doing on telly <laughs> of course you do, of course you do. <laughs> right let's open the floor to questions we've got Jude on a microphone over this side we've got Roddy on microphone here stick your hands up and we will get a mic to this gentleman just here to start with Jude if you wouldn't mind or is that one who's going to win who's going to win you've won sir go um the way you end a lot of your segments is a, a plate being empties with a cutlery just going into it. I was just yeah. wondering, who normally gets to finish that food? Um, <laughs> the plate's being emptied. Well, I'll just explain. It's quite tricky, really, because um, you can't actually just empty. You have to take everything off very carefully because if you move the plate, it doesn't work. And the guy that always does it is... Chris, the cameraman, who's a vegetarian, so he isn't going to eat it. <laughs> but we take it carefully off onto another plate, and then we eat it. <laughs> and then we take the knife and fork and just sort of cover it in a bit of gravy and bung it down. But it looks great. That's a funny, Tricks of the funny trade. Thing to do. Yeah. That's where the director, David's so good. He just has these sort of, like, crazy ideas, you know. And his idea at the beginning of Long Weekends was hey, Rick, where are you going this weekend? You know, which was basically, he was thinking of come fly with me, Frank Sinatra. And it was a sort of bit of a jokey take on, you know, come fly with me. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. OK, question here. 
trip on the canals that they need, their famous food. Um, China, yeah, we, we'd love to do China. Um, and in, interestingly, the next series, we are going back to France and we are going to go on not the same canal, but in, the, um, uh, in Burgundy. Um, I, I would love to do China. And over the years, I've been re repeatedly saying to the BBC, what about China? And they are beginning to change their mind, right? Because it's just, you have to listen. And, uh, you know, we, we are about getting sort of quite big audiences and therefore I would have said any time in the last five years a series in China would work but I think it, it's just I think India worked for us because we all have so much knowledge and enthusiasm for Indian cuisine and less so for Chinese just simply because there aren't haven't been that as many restaurants in the UK but I think the way that sort of cuisine all over the world and our understanding about it, mainly through travel, the way it's all changing, that Chinese food, and thanks to people like Ken Hom, that it's, it's now, we all realise that there's a massive regional difference in food in China, and to be able to go to all those regions and taste the food, sorry, but the job ain't too bad. There's <laughs> <laughs> a question just here. You're going to Iceland, to Reykjavik. Um, well, it depends how, how sort of macho you are, because I would recommend you go... There's a bar there that... I can't remember what it's called, but it's in the back of the book if you've got it, and have the, um, the Aquavit, which is called Brin... Uh, I can't remember now. I'm not getting Alzheimer's. It's just Brenovin, Brenovin, okay, which is like a... Um, like an eau de vie, you know, and the raw fish. The, the raw putrid fish, right? I'm not recommending it, but if you feel a bit of a, you know, the need to show your manliness, go for it, because it's funny, you know? And actually, it does work. It's not quite as nice as tequila and the lemon and the salt, and the, the lime and the salt. But in terms of um, lovely food, there are two restaurants, one, one called Dill, and one called, and my Icelandic is not very good, it's called Mutter und Drinkor, or something like that, which means food and drink. And it's right on the waterfront, and it's really nice. But I don't know where you're staying, but the Iceland Air Hotel um, down on the harbour, Sass is agreeing, my <laughs> wife. It's just so pleasant, because you're in the bar, and it's a fantastic cocktail bar. They do really good cocktails. And you turn around, and there's a trawler actually in dry dock outside the window being scraped and repainted it's a lovely city it's only like 300 400,000 and um, I don't I haven't met anybody that doesn't adore Iceland so lucky you have fun other questions okay down here yeah Hi, Rick. I, I'm from India, and I absolutely loved your Indian thank series, you. so thank, thank you. you. Um, how often do plans change? Because you know there's a lot of research involved. Has it ever happened where you get there and you're like, right, we may have to make a few changes? Who takes those shots, and how often does that happen? It, well, it's a, that's a good question. Uh, you know, how with the research, how often do plans change? Um, they're always changing. I mean, we have to have a master plan. But I think um, me and David take great delight in criticising the plan as soon as we get to a place. And um, one of the, we, we had this thing, which I don't think is true, but in India, um, Arazu are a producer who's from Iran, and therefore 
knows everything about Persian food, right? And therefore knows about a lot of food in India, knew a lot. And basically, she's like my older sister. So whenever I mispronounce a name for food, she puts me right, which gets me... But we both got into our um, heads that she was just researching into the great houses of India, and we spent all our time going to sort of palaces, and we just... just which was fab. Lovely, you know? yeah. But we had too much sort of royal food, we felt. But I think when you look at the whole series, it was well-balanced. I just remember a, a um, wonderful... And it, funnily enough, we were there this time in 2013 in Tamil Nadu in um, Pondicherry mm. uh, and it, filming in a fisherman's house with a, a lovely woman... Who, fil fil who produced a cod curry, or it wasn't cod there, it was a different fish, which we still got on all the menus, and it was just so simple. And she said, when I was in the kitchen, she said, I feel so honoured. I said, I'm honoured. Mm. And I just remember the walls, which, they, they, it was like, they're not well off at all, but the walls are painted in this wonderful green. There's, I think there's a picture in the book. Just such fun. Yeah, it isn't a bad job. <laughs> uh, other questions there's one that we'll get we'll come to you first Roddy could we get a mic pop your hand up again and we'll come to you second okay hello um, you often are filmed just walking down in markets uh, at random you, you appear to stop suddenly see a stall go up and start nibbling something and chatting to the uh, the market stall holder as though it hasn't been fixed but has it Actually, it hasn't normally been fixed. I mean, it's sort of, you know, I will do that. And then you'll just say to the stallholder, do you mind if we film? And sometimes they do mind. They do mind if they're really busy and they, they can't afford to stop and film with you because they're losing sales. But generally they don't. But we don't, we don't sort of fix it. We just say, do you mind? And just then go in and do, and do it. I mean, I always like find it really hard when we go to a market now because I've done so many markets before what can I say that's sort of going to set this one up from somewhere else but funnily enough there always is <coughs> something to say and I think it's really because markets <coughs> no disrespect to supermarkets but markets good markets is so much more stimulating if you're a cook than supermarkets just simply because the food is fresher and it's more immediate and there's all the characters that are selling it. So there is literally always something. I just remember one I really liked in uh, Bologna. I suddenly got it into my head because I'd run out sort of ideas to do a Jules Holland. You know, like this programming. So over here's this bun and there's that. And I did the same with the stools. I, I like that. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, question was just here. Yeah. Afternoon. Thank you very much for your travel programs because they are the only ones that go with food and wine. So they're really an enticement to actually go to those places. But I hope you might consider, with a bit of help from your producer, to go to where I was born, which is Mauritius, which is an island there, a, a, a right sort of melting pot of Asian, French colonial, English colonial. So but thank, you, thank you very much. Is well, I've been to Mauritius on a jolly to the um, San Geran Hotel. Spent a week there of um, great luxury, I must say. And also went into, what's the capital called, Peter? 
Port, Port Louis. Louis, that's right, yeah. And it's fa it is, it's great. I mean, I suppose it's just that we'd probably want to tie in maybe Reunion and maybe sort of South Africa or Zanzibar or Madagascar, maybe do a whole thing in that part of the Indian Ocean. I, I think that's a programme, isn't it? Yeah, I, mean, yeah. I can feel that coming together. Yeah, yeah, it sounds quite good, actually. Right. <laughs> Shouldn't have said it. Somebody's going to copy it now. They won't dare. Blinking... <laughs> the hairy bikers will be off there next. <laughs> I love them dearly, don't get me wrong. <laughs> Other questions? Oh, we come to you. Is there anybody over this side? Okay, we'll come to you second. Come on here. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. Thanks very much for a brilliant programme on Mexico. As a comfort book, what would you say I must have in terms of herbs and spices in my kitchen? For Mexico? Well, I mean, the first thing you, you must have is all the dried chilies, which are very easy to get, have the things like wajillo and pasilla and chipotle. And they're very easy to get, and they can, you can have them in your store cupboards, and they'll stay forever. And then because I think that's really what sets the... Apart from sort of particular chilies like habanero or poblano, habaneros are the really hot ones, and poblanos are the ones you stuff. You can sort of get by with what you can get locally, but you really need those chilies. The other thing, of course, you need is very, very ripe avocados because the avocados are on everything. And um, sometimes, I mean, the things are getting much better in this country. I've just noticed that everywhere you go now, you have smashed avocados on toast for breakfast, on sourdough toast. They've been doing that in Australia for about 25 years, but... Actually, we are getting better at our avocados, but I mean, I would say Mexico and, funnily enough, Australia just have the best avocados. And it, I've said in it, it sounds a bit fanciful, but it's a bit like putting, I don't know, Cornish clotted cream on your food, putting a lovely avocado on it. So good chilies, coriander. Um, that's about that's about it. There are sort of odd herbs. They have a couple of herbs. One called epizotti which does make, it does taste distinctive, but you can do without it. It's really difficult to suggest a substitute to epizote. It's, I haven't even tried, I don't think. And the other one which I really like is called Herba, Herba Santa, which is a bit like tarragon. It's got this really nice aniseedy flavour. Apart from that, you, you do need to have your, your corn, your, your masa harina, Making your own tortillas is a bit troublesome, and I would never dream of it if I'm cooking for a lot of people. But you get yourself a little tortilla press, and if you if you like corn, I mean, you can buy nixtamalized corn. I think there's a very lovely stew in Mexico called pozole, which is like a corn and normally chicken stew with with chili in it. Which I'm probably not making it sound very good, but it is fabulous but it's not that I mean once you've got your dried chilies and maybe a little bit of um, they say that the Mexican oregano is t totally different I'm blown if I can see it but <laughs> there's a company I can't remember what it's called but if you go online go on uh, there's a company that does a box of everything you need in the dried line for Mexican cooking We've got time for one more question. There was somebody here who's been waiting really patiently. Make it a quick one, won't you? Hi, Rick. I just wondered, out of all the places that you've been to, what was your favourite place to film in and why? Of all the places I've been to, what's a favourite? I mean, um, I just love everywhere we go. Um, I, I suppose 
I, th I think probably the places that have um, a, a lot of sort of philosophy behind the cooking, uh, and I'm thinking I've, I only did one program in Japan, but I've been to China quite a lot, and we did one program in Shanghai. And there, you know, if you get talking to a good English speaker, it's hopeless, you know, same with Japan, who really understands English and can explain a lot of the philosophy behind the food, it's fabulous. And similarly with India, actually, it's sort of what I like, because I do, you know, it's, to me, food is so important. And the sort of intellectual, the sort of like academic side of food, mixing food with, you know, how you feel about life, that's brilliant. And for that reason, I really like Italian food, because there is a reason for everything they choose, and it has to be just so. And when we do France, that's what I'm going to be looking for. It's not just, you know, just finding another recipe for, a, I don't know, a cazolet, but I want to talk to people about why this matters and how it fits into the sort of, like, your life, you know? So it's the countries where I picked up on that. Every country has it. I mean, when we were filming in Greece, I, I was sort of really not looking forward to it because we filmed in India, which, you know, you just cannot go wrong in India. The food's so brilliant, so colourful, so interesting. And I've been to Greece for most of my life, and, you know, it, it seemed to be like a poor alternative to what we just filmed. But once you get into it, once you start talking to them about why they choose why they choose and what is special, it's, it's lovely. So, you know, I would say anywhere. <laughs> Apart I've... from Corsica. Corsica, they don't do very good fish. <laughs> Controversial. <laughs> you heard that here first too. Um, I feel like we could go on talking for hours, oh, God, but we so. can't. Um, Rick's going to be over at the Stanford stand signing and chatting and etc. There's a real selection. There's something for, everything, uh, for everyone, actually, within, within your books, and there's a great selection over there. Thank you very much yeah, for coming to listen. Much. But most of all, thanks, Rick Stein. Cheers.